Welcome to Brain and Advance. We are delighted to be joined by Jacob Darren, who is a fan of the show and also has written an excellent paper on abortion and personal identity. Jacob, would you like to start with a thought experiment? Absolutely. I'm going to begin with two thought experiments. Both of these come from Reasons and Persons by Derek Parfit. So I'm going to read to you the first one just as it was written by Parfit. He says, William's example, I am the prisoner of some callous neurosurgeon who intends to disrupt my psychological continuity by tampering with my brain. I shall be conscious while he operates and in pain. I therefore dread what is coming. The surgeon tells me that while I am in pain, he will do several things. He will first activate some neurodes that will give me amnesia. I shall suddenly lose all of my memories of my life up to the start of my pain. Does this give me less reason to dread what is coming? The second one, the branch line case, is a version of that experiment he calls teletransportation. So teletransportation is a very famous thought experiment. I'm sure listeners of the show have probably heard of it, but essentially in teletransportation, the idea is that you, that there's a device that can disintegrate your body on earth and then reconstruct it out of essentially identical matter on Mars. And then you will wake up in the new body. And this raises questions about whether or not you're the same person after the procedure. The branch line case goes like this. It says, several years pass during which I am often teletransported. I am now back in the cubicle ready for another trip to Mars. But this time when I press the green button, I do not lose consciousness. There is a whirring sound, then silence. I leave the cubicle and say to the attendant, it's not working, what did I do wrong? Someone politely coughs, a white-coated man who asks to speak to me in private. We go to his office where he tells me to sit down and pauses. Then he says, I'm afraid that we're having problems with the new scanner. It records your blueprint just as accurately as you will see when you talk to yourself on Mars, but it seems to be damaging the cardiac systems which it scans. Judging from the results so far, though you will be quite healthy on Mars, here on Earth you must expect cardiac failure within the next few days. So I chose these two thought experiments because they illustrate an important distinction between numerical identity and qualitative identity when it comes to people or moral patients, any sort of living entity that we could consider the subject of moral duties. So I think that what we can learn from William's example is that even though it is the case that you're qualitatively a completely different person after the procedure, it does make sense to dread the pain that will be inflicted on you later. And I believe the best explanation for this is because you have a continuity of consciousness. You will experience the first part of the procedure and the last part of the procedure. The thing that makes the branch line case useful for discussion of abortion is that it illustrates that merely merely the destruction of a guy is not the thing that really matters in terms of moral duties towards a person. So in the branch line case, we have an, the, the, this identical version of you on Mars and an identical version of you on Earth, and you here on Earth will be destroyed, whereas this version of you on Mars will continue. But even though the version of you on Mars will continue, it doesn't seem to me that's just as good as survival, even though this thing that's exactly like you will continue after you the version of you on Earth is gone. So a question in the original teletransporter case. So you step in, there's a whirring sound, and then you, this body gets destroyed, and another body with an identical consciousness gets created on Mars and then walks out the other side with all the memories of the first body person. Do you survive? Does that first body person survive through the second? 
What is Parfit's view on that? In, in simple teletransportation, Parfit's view is essentially that personal identity is not what matters. What matters is the continuity of consciousness and or what he calls relation R. So the thing that matters in simple teletransportation is there's a continuity of memory and personality. And that's the thing that really matters whether or not you are the same person that survives through teletransportation. But then there's some difficult questions to answer around what constitutes continuity. So it seems like there is a discontinuity in one sense between the person who steps onto the transporter pad and the, the person who steps off the transporter pad on Mars. There is a discontinuity of some sort. There's some sort of continuity because the person who steps off on Mars remembers things that happened to the person who stepped onto the transporter pad on Earth. But there is some sort of discontinuity. There's not a continuity in consciousness in the sense that the very same consciousness has no break at all, right? I think that it would be true to say there's a break in consciousness. And my view of what continuity of consciousness means could allow for there to be, you know, what I think we've talked about it before in this show is gappy existence. So it is possible for there to be a break in your consciousness, like you could go to sleep and then you can wake up. But from the first person perspective, there, the next experience has followed the previous one, even if it's followed it by a period of time. So I think that's true. And it might be a problem for certain views of consciousness, but the way I'm describing it, I don't think that's necessarily a fatal problem. So this is a favorite topic of discussion between Jason and I about gappy existence. Jason's view is that you can't have it. If you cease to exist for some period of time, then you die. And the thing that pops out is a clone, not you. And there are different kind of ways in which we could think about that gap. So you've given one example, which is someone goes to sleep. Jason's going to say, well, look, you could wake that person up. And their disposition is that they're going to remember all the things about themselves that are important. And so it's okay if they're asleep. Where he has difficulties are if you go into an altered state, so you mainline heroin or you take a large dose of psilocybin mushrooms and you're in a very different mental state. He's going to say, well, at that juncture, you cease to exist because you enter this new realm. We might think that getting cryogenically frozen for enough time where we can't just shake you awake might also result in your death instead of your survival. So I wonder what your thoughts are on this and if you think that gap existence is something we ought not to worry about at all. I think it's definitely something to worry about, but I, there is another part of the paper where I describe what might happen, for example, if you were to drink very heavily and then become violent. And I feel like that's a good example because to me, it feels like if you were to drink very heavily and then become violent, it would be appropriate for you to feel guilt for what you did in that state. It would be inappropriate for you to say, that wasn't me at all. That was a separate human being. It wasn't, it wasn't, a, it was a person who looked exactly like me. And it wouldn't be appropriate for you to approach that as if, for example, you had an identical twin that committed violence towards someone. That was actually me, and I should apologize for what I did. And you might think that the fact that it wasn't that per that person who committed that act didn't have the same sort of personality as you is mitigating to some extent. And I think that would be true. And the reason why it would be true gets at the difference between qualitative and numerical identity, because one of the things that, that would matter there is that you could claim that's not the sort of person that I am most of the time. And that would have a, a bearing on what we think of this person, but it would be inappropriate to say that wasn't me at all. That was a separate person. 
Yeah, I think those cases are interesting. It seems to me like you have reason to be guilty, not for what you did while you were blackout drunk, but you have reason to be guilty because you made the choice to drink so much. And given that you made that choice, stuff could happen that you don't have control over. And that seems to me like the reason why you should feel guilty. I think that, oh, sorry, Mark, are you going to say something? Yeah, I'll add in a little problem for Jason. Who's supposed to feel guilty? The person who drank is now dead. We can't hold them liable. You might think that they created a situation in which they cease to exist and some new being pops into existence and may or may not do some horrible stuff. And so probabilistically you want to hold them liable, but they're a non-entity now because they died. They drank too much. So who are we holding liable? Is it the new guy? The new guy says, hey, I just got birthed into being. I got birthed into being as this drunken monster. I beat up a bunch of people. It's not my fault that I was birthed into being like that. That's the old guy. He's dead. Don't blame me. Yeah, no, that's a problem for my account because my view is that you exist during a certain period of time, then you get blackout drunk, you die when you get blackout drunk, but then you don't come back after that because you gap your existence on my position. So in my position, there's person one, person two, and then person three. It just so happens that person one and person three could be qualitatively identical or very similar. They're just not, on my view, numerically identical. So how can I say that person three feels guilty for the choices of person one? Well, maybe one way is by saying, sometimes we feel guilty for the choices of our parents. So let's say my father was Hitler. I might feel very bad about that. There's a whole generation of Germans that were felt very guilty about the actions of prior Germans. And they're not even their necessarily direct descendants. But if they were direct descendants, let's say your father was Hitler or your father was Himmler, you'd feel very guilty about that, even though you did not perform any of those actions. But if imagine Himmler had the identical mental states to you, then you might start to feel pretty upset about it. You might, if you found out that this was your father, for example, is later and you were adopted, you might start to feel, oh my goodness, I have, perhaps I'm not responsible for what he did, but you may still feel guilt. So on my view, it's those sort of feelings, but it's a nice problem, Mark. So here's a problem for both of you who think that gappy existence is okay, at least some of the time. So how do you deal with cases like resurrection. So you die and we put you in the ground and we all mourn you, right? And then at some point in the foreseeable future, in a way that is unforeseen, we do not think you're going to be resurrected, but for whatever reason you are, maybe it's 10 years later, hundred years later, 10,000 years later, you resurrected and you pop out of the ground and you got all the memories of original Mark and you go about your day. Now, on my view, you died. And this is not Mark. This is a very similar clone, but this is not Mark. On your view, it's, I don't know how you would cash this out. Because when the original Mark died, we all think that the right thing to do was to bury that Mark in a casket and for us all to say our goodbyes and to mourn. But on your view, that was irrational to do that? Because actually Mark was never dead. Mark just had a gappy existence that we couldn't foresee. How do you deal with cases like that? I wouldn't say it's irrational because you had every reason to believe that this person was dead and gone. And it turned out you were mistaken later on, but it's appropriate to mourn them in a situation like that, because for all you know, that person is never going to come back. And we don't generally hold people morally responsible for mistakes like that. I wanted to circle back for a second to, it was just interesting that you gave the example of Germans feeling guilty about their Nazi grandparents, because I had... I was listening recently to a podcast about the Nuremberg trials, and I was thinking about this during that because they were talking about the example of Rudolf Hess, 
who claimed to be an amnesiac during the trial. And I think it's widely accepted he was just lying about that. But let's say that he was, he wasn't lying about that. What if he really did forget everything that he did that contributed to his role in the Holocaust? It seems like on a view like yours, where that person has died at that point, it would be inappropriate to hold him responsible for what he did and they shouldn't have executed him. But, and you can make the problem even worse by asking, what if he intentionally gave himself amnesia? He took a pill or something that made him an amnesiac and he said, oh, look, the allies are going, are going to take over Germany. I'm going to be captured and tried as a war criminal. I can escape this by just taking my amnesiac pill. So what would you do in a situation like that? My intuition truly differs from yours. So if he truly doesn't remember any of the actions he performed, then it does seem inappropriate to punish him for those actions, at least from one perspective. There may be other reasons to punish him. So you might want to punish him so that his victims get closure. You may want to punish him so that society makes an example of him. All of those reasons may have positive utility, right? But is he responsible? Is this person in front of you responsible? Imagine he's a dithering old man who really has no recollection of what happened. It seems odd to punish him. He might scream his way to the gallows saying, I, I, have, I didn't do these things. I have no recollection of this and I would never do them now. And, and just assume for the moment that's true. Assume that together with his amnesia pull, he takes a, a, a 180 degree morality pull where his morality gets inverted. And now he's just an upstanding humanitarian. Then it really does seem weird to punish this person. My intuition is you shouldn't do so purely for the reason that, that he should be punished rather than because of some societal good. It does open up another avenue, which is that you could imagine a society like the one mentioned in Clockwork Orange, where instead of sticking you in a penitentiary for many years, we just change your mental states. So you go through a kind of brainwashing exercise where whenever you expose the violence, you feel nausea and this compels you to do things that are good. And I think on Jason's account, he's going to say, well, vegetarian dessert doesn't really matter to me as long as this person's not going to do any new bad stuff. And I suppose if the victims are happy with the way that we've dealt with them, then that seems even better. We didn't have to inflict any harm on the person. So I would assume like rearranging their mental states and things like that would all be up Jason's alley. But What's interesting here is when we plug in the metaphysical questions to the moral questions, we start to fork off. So some people are just going to say, I'm drawing a hard line in the sand. I think some people deserve things because of what they did and you can't escape them by drinking too much whiskey. Others are going to say, there's no such thing as dessert anyway. So we're just looking at the forward looking consequences from the punishment and the metaphysics might not bother them one way or the other. This is Pile on Jason Day. It's interesting. What is happening when you change their mental states? On my view, you're killing them, right? And another being pops up, which is a much happier being, which causes less suffering in the world, maybe causes immense joy in the world. So has something bad happened? If you only look at those data points, then no, it seems like something good has happened. And by hypothesis, you saying that that prisoner is happy with the change. They want the change to happen. So has anything bad happened when you only look at those data points? Perhaps not. But something to think about is what if that prisoner said, no, I don't want this to happen. And what if other people think, what if I was, what if I committed a crime? And the only way that that society handles that is by killing me, by removing my memories and killing me and removing my mental states and replacing them with others, removing my personality, replacing it with another, my psychological profile gets replaced. 
I'm gone at that point. I die. And that could cause immense havoc in that society. So from a utilitarian perspective, if that's the case, then that's going to have negative consequences. And so you don't do it for that reason. I wonder if you think that performing somebody's mental states like that is equivalent to killing them. Would you need the same standard of proof, the same sort of trials for capital punishment if you're going to give it to them? Some people might say it's worse. It's one thing to put someone to death. It's another person. It's another thing to erase them and to replace them with another program in their brains, another set of memories, another set of psychological states. We might think it's worse. And so perhaps the burden of proof should be even higher. At least when you kill someone, you kill them intact. Here you're replacing them. One of Mark's classic examples that he uses when it comes to defending vegetarianism or veganism is he says that it is worse to rape. Is it worse to rape a cow or to kill it? And he thinks it's worse to rape the cow. So it's, it seems like there's things that are worse than death. It's replacing the cow's mental states with something much worse. And here you may not be replacing these mental states with something worse, but you're certainly replacing them with something different. And if the person didn't want that to happen, that seems horrendous. Can you imagine the, can you imagine the process where that happens? And just before that person thinking that they're about to be raised, that's, there's a great film, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, where Jim Carrey undergoes a procedure like this, where his memories of his ex-wife or ex-partner get erased. And as this is happening, he doesn't want it to happen. And he tries desperately to hang on to these memories and it feels torturous. It feels much worse than death. I think in one sense, I would agree with you, but probably for a different reason. I think I'm more sympathetic to the sort of Kantian view that we need to respect a lot of moral duties derived from us needing to respect people as rational agents, as being full members of society. So I think it might in one sense be worse to erase somebody's mind because that destroys their capacity to act as a, a rational autonomous agent. And yeah, but I think maybe I don't think that's true because of the utilitarian justifications, but I do think you would probably also be right that if people knew this was happening, it might cause tremendous chaos that people would rebel against the idea that the state can just erase your memory at will like that. See, all of this sounds very plausible so far. We're imagining someone who's got all these memories and these like relationships and they go through the process and they're completely shattered and a whole bunch of new stuff has come in and no one really recognizes the person on the other end. Jason's gap existence is you have three tequilas and you're punished. The old guy died. The new guy pops out, happens to have all the memories of the old guy, but it doesn't matter. We had a break. And so old guy can't be held responsible. New guy maybe feels some guilt for the stuff the old guy did. He knows I'm a new person, so it's not my fault anyway. And we don't really need to have imprisonment or the death penalty. The three shots of whiskey or four, how many wants the person to drink, you know, are sufficient. That's when it starts to look a bit implausible. I think if we're talking about the full erasure, then we can really grapple with this notion of this is a serious punishment. This seems pretty bad. This does look like an annihilation of a person. But uh, the temporary mental mishap, I don't know if anyone else is buying it. Yeah, so it would be a problem to if the way I escape crimes is by drinking three tequilas and then I no longer need punishment and no longer can be punished. So perhaps my account of punishment just needs to be different, right? So it's, it doesn't require personal identity. It just, it requires something else. 
sufficient similarity. And you might say, but then it's no good if we pull some random Joe off the street to punish them for what someone else did if they're sufficiently similar. And those cases will be difficult for me. But I'd have to bite the bullet on those kind of cases and say sufficiently similar means very similar. It means same memories, same mental states, same intentions. That per, that that Joe Schmo on the street would do exactly the same thing in the same circumstances as the original offender. But you're not going to find those kind of people walking around if it's if it's not a good clone of the original. Those kind of cases aren't going to be a problem. But I agree, this is a nice stalemate. Yeah. So what I'm interested in, Jacob, is how this relates to the issue of abort the issue of abortion. Given that you have a particular account of personal identity that you're working with here, how does what are the consequences for when or whether abortion is moral or immoral? Yeah, I framed it as a question of personal identity. And I think in one sense, it's a little broader than that, because one thing I would like this argument to do is bypass the question of when does the fetus become a person? Because to my view, I think that's not as important as the underlying moral question of what are we allowed to do to this thing? at different times. So I'm trying to get underneath it and get at the metaphysical question of does this thing, whatever it is, persist across time? And my claim is that for some moral patient, whatever it is, to persist across time, you're going to need continuity of consciousness. And that just means that you have one experience that follows the next, that follows the next, that follows the one after that. And I think I acknowledge in the paper, it is a little bit difficult to give a satisfactory account of what continuity of consciousness means, partly because our isn't so good at doing it, but you can intuitively understand that if you, if you trip and then you, you feel pain in your toe, the one has followed the next. And that's not the same thing as if you trip, but then somebody else a moment afterwards is eating an apple. Those aren't continuous in the same way. But the reason why, the reason why this is relevant to abortion is because I think that what you can cash this out and do is say, until the fetus or whatever stage we're talking about this being is conscious, killing it is not wrong. And so abortion is permissible. And in order to make that claim, I'm relying on the intuition that for the act of killing to be wrong, something must be killed. There must be an entity that has been killed. And with this metaphysical claim about the continuity of consciousness, I'm claiming this being has no identity. It is not a thing that you can claim has been killed. And you can't make that claim until, at least until it's conscious. So I wonder if we can have victims that are not conscious. So if I set your car alight, it seems like I've done something immoral. The car is not a victim of the crime, but it seems like you've been wrong because it is your car. You can imagine that, let's say I give a substance to a pregnant woman who's got a fetus at 21 weeks of development and the fetus dies and you can say, well, I don't think the fetus was a victim. It still seems like I've done something wrong. So I wonder if victimhood is necessary for the immorality. Yeah, I feel like you've definitely done something wrong in the case where you've given the woman the drug that kills that being that does, that on my view is not yet a person. But I think you don't have to explain that by saying you've literally committed murder. You can claim You've done something like violated the woman's right to autonomy. You've committed an assault. You, there might also be utilitarian justifications for punishing somebody like that. Who would do that? Seems like they'd have no qualms about killing a fully grown human being. I think that 
in one sense, you can talk about victimhood in the colloquial sense and say, if I set my car, if I set your car on fire, it's the victim of the act of burning. But there's a more strict sense of victimhood, which I'm using here, that really refers to the harm done to some moral patient. And if nobody owned that car, I don't think the claim that it was the victim of the act would be quite as strong. There wouldn't be anything inherently morally wrong with burning the car. The reason why it's wrong is you've harmed me, the owner of the car. So I want to push Mark's case a bit further. Suppose there's a substance that causes a woman to miscarry, and it's a substance that people might spike another's drink with for reasons other than to make her miscarry. So perhaps it's a drug that, it's a date rape drug, or it's a particular food, or it's a sedative, or I suppose it's puffer fish. I have no idea if puffer fish cause miscarriages. I'm assuming they don't, but let's just say for a moment that puffer fish cause miscarriages, and someone goes and spikes a woman's drink with puffer fish serum. It's extracted from the puffer fish and they spike their drink, spike this woman's drink. In just suppose that this woman is pregnant, has something worse happened if this woman is pregnant with a baby before the consciousness threshold, with a fetus before the consciousness threshold sets in, so say at 10 weeks or 15 weeks, versus if the woman was not pregnant at all? And the problem with your account is you can't, on your account, that they're equally wrong because nothing bad has happened in addition to the woman's autonomy being violated in the sense that her bodily integrity has been undermined. Nothing in addition has happened that's wrong in the case where she's pregnant. I think if the woman knows she's pregnant in this case, I think something worse definitely has happened that a woman who is subjected to that sort of thing would be significantly traumatized, she would feel like she's lost at least a potential child. I know it seems like that's sort of irrational on my account because I'm saying it's not yet a human being or a person. I don't think that you necessarily have to think of it that way though. It's, uh, there was a paper, I think it was by Margaret Little at one point that I read at one point that talked about the intimacy that results from gestation and that being a really important account of pregnancy, that there's this intimacy between the woman and this potential life, that's very important. And I think psychologically for a lot of people, that's a really personal aspect of abortion that if you were subjected to some sort of violent assault that killed the fetus, you would feel personally violated. I think even in a way beyond the harm that's done to the potential being, you would feel like this person has harmed my child, but you've also felt like You've done something to me as a mother in this intimate relationship with this man, you've harmed that. So we can refine the case. Say the mom really buys your account of personhood and the mom's, she has absolutely no feelings towards this fetus until it gains consciousness and is a victim, a potential victim or a person. And she's of the Jacob Darren school of, of thought on this. And she, she is not traumatized by this at all. But if you were to do it a week or two later, once the child does reach consciousness, she'll be horrified, totally distraught. On your account, there's nothing worse that has happened to her than to the non-pregnant version of her. But most Kantians and people intuitively would think something terrible has happened. There's a murder that's occurred or something similar. So in the case that you're describing, is the woman okay with being given the drink or is she just okay with the consequences? She's not okay with being given the drink because she doesn't want her bodily autonomy to be violated. She's very upset, just like the non-pregnant woman would be upset that her drink has been spiked, but she's not upset because 
a potential baby has died because she doesn't see potential babies. She just sees a lump of moving matter inside her. And that lump of moving matter then just disappears because she doesn't believe in potential babies just as you don't before they're conscious. What I would say in a case like that is there is no actual harm in that case beyond the assault to the woman or the battery to the woman, I suppose. But the person is still more morally culpable than if they had done this to somebody else because they've acted recklessly. They don't know that person has those beliefs. And most people don't have those beliefs. So I, it's, it's, there's a case of moral luck here where if you're driving drunk and you kill somebody versus you're driving drunk and you don't kill somebody, there is a difference in terms of your moral culpability, but there's still some sort of moral culpability for acting in a way that creates a sick, significant amount of risk in the world. So I wonder about adding in people's false beliefs into the moral equilibrium. So a lot of people feel very much that life starts at conception and that you get a soul as soon as there's a zygote and that you've done the worst possible thing by having an abortion. There are people that feel so strongly about this that they are in the courts to change their minds. They were successful in overturning Roe versus Wade. I would think that there are probably tens of millions of people like this in America. And so when they hear about women aborting, they feel incredibly terrible about it. And you want to say, tough, who cares? So what? You believe a false thing. Like it doesn't matter if you get an abortion within the first couple of days. There's no souls. This is all crap. Why should I put your feelings on the moral scale? But on the other end, in this case, you would say, well, the woman believes a whole bunch of false stuff and those feelings matter. And so in this case, we should take it into account and that explains the wrongness. So why does the mother's erroneous feelings matter under certain conditions, but everybody else's feelings don't matter? This is part of the rallying cry of a rights activist where they say, my body, my choice. I think the difference is those people have no interest in the woman's body and in this potential, in the fetus or the potential life. Whereas the woman does have an interest in her own body and in this intimate relationship she has with, with the fetus or the zygote. I would also say, I guess, I regret when people are offended by something. And in the abstract sense, I wish people felt better, but I also don't think that should stop women from doing what they would like with their own bodies in cases where they're not doing something wrong. So it would matter. It just doesn't matter to me as much as people's individual rights to control themselves. But then you've got two competing moral theories at work here, right? So you've got some sort of deontological or Kantian account of rights that this woman has a right to do with her body what she chooses. But at the same time, you're taking into account people's feelings under certain circumstances. You're just saying that in some circumstances, their feelings outweigh rather than others they don't. So what is the moral account operating here? It doesn't seem like a simple utilitarianism or deontology. Because deontologists wouldn't, under normal circumstances, think that the feelings of the mother, if they involve false beliefs, would be very important. And on the other hand, utilitarians wouldn't think that the rights involved that you're mentioning here are in themselves very important. It's more about the consequences of certain actions being generalized in society. What I would say is that I think you can fit consequences into a deontological account. In some sense, you can say, one thing the Kantians do is they'll say, you have a an obligation to give charity because it's good for the world. You don't have an obligation to give charity to any particular person. One way that deontological accounts are generally described is there are side constraints. So you should maximize the good, but you shouldn't do it in a way that violates rights or violates duties. Personally, I don't know. I said earlier, I'm sympathetic to the Kantian account, and I think I lean 
more towards it over time as I think about ethics, but especially after engaging with Parfit's work, I did my senior thesis on the repugnant conclusion. And I thought a lot about what he was thinking there. And I think from thinking about that, I've come to the general conclusion that I don't know if I think that any one of the major ethical theories applies in all cases. I think what we need is maybe some sort of pluralistic account of different types of values, and maybe we weight them in different ways, depending on the situation. And I know that's complicated because it's going to depend a lot on the context and a lot on intuitions, but I really feel like it's just difficult to have an account that doesn't do that. There are a lot of very highly contextual things that we need to take into account. And there's a lot of useful wisdom in, in all of the different accounts of normative ethics that we should be able to draw on if we have the ability to do that. And yeah, it might be difficult, but I think we should be able to. So we did an episode with one of our favorite guests, Thad Metz, recently. He's written a book called uh, The Relational Moral Theory. And we accused him of having a jelly account where whatever situation arises, you borrow some principles from Cantonism or virtue ethics or Ubuntu, whatever it is, and you can always squirm your way out of it, but it's unclear what the theory is. It just seems to operate as at best, which whatever situation arises, but then it's not clear that those principles would, would apply in other cases. But yeah, I live in hope of a really good hybrid account. I think maybe the answer is something like rights as thresholds and that at some juncture they can be overridden and maybe you have different kinds of interests that get to stack up. Yeah, it's a hard problem. I wonder about this. So if we look at what you've, what you've expressed thus far is this idea that it's important when we're determining what counts as a victim, if they have a, a line of consciousness, that there's overlapping links in their mental states over time. And you've taken the view that for a fetus, it starts at 22 weeks. Why do we think it's at that point? What level of kind of awareness is important and why would it not kick in at a much later stage? Yeah, I think that's an empirical question that I, I'm not very qualified to talk about the neuroscience, but based on my research into the neuroscience, it seems like the reason they've chosen 22 weeks is because that's the point when the cortex starts developing. So before that point, you've really only got the brainstem. And as far as we can tell, the brainstem just does things like regulate autonomic functions. So that's a bare minimum where at that point there might be consciousness. If at some point in the future, we were to discover that the brainstem is capable of generating consciousness, then I would probably revise my account and I'd say, we have to move the line back further than it is now. But based on the best evidence we have at this point. I'm deferring to people who are smarter than me in neuroscience and have dedicated their life doing this. And I think that's really the best we can do in situations like this. So I want to return to a metaphysical point because this does seem central to quite a few of your accounts, your account that is, is being played out in various fields like and, and morality. And that's this, this single consciousness that persists through time. So the question I have is, why at time one and time two, you have a consciousness at time one, you have a consciousness at time two, in virtue of what is this the same consciousness? Now you might say, because there's uh, there's no break, there's continuity. This just seems to be like a stream that flows, but you also think there's gappy existence. So you think that sometimes that stream stops temporarily and then starts up again, but in, in virtue of what is it the same stream, in virtue of what is it the same consciousness at time one as at time two? Now, the Parfitian will normally say something like, 
it's because of shared memories or it's because of shared psychological states or shared psychological profile. But at the very beginning of this discussion, you mentioned the Williams case where what happens during the surgery is that those psychological states break down. So suppose we alter that case slightly. At time one, you go under the knife and at time one, you have all these beliefs and memories, psychological profile, mental states. Then you go under the knife and you get given anesthesia. You go under, you wake up, someone wakes up and that someone doesn't have the same psychology as the person at time one. Their beliefs, their mental states, their psychology has changed, but they inhabit the same body. On your account, is that the same person? You've got gappy existence. Is that the same person? Okay, that's a lot of things to respond to. I think I'll take the last part first. Is that the same person? There's an ambiguity in the word same. And so I would say it's the same person in one sense and not in, in another sense. It's one and the same person in the sense of numerical identity. So both of those people, if you were to count up how many people you have, they're the same person. There's only one. They're not qualitatively the same. This is a very different kind of person. So that's what I'd say about that. Why? Why are they numerically identical? That's my question. Yeah, I'm giving, basically the reason is because of the continuity of consciousness. And you're asking there me- There isn't. There isn't, right? They went under the knife. Consciousness stopped. The way I've phrased it is there can be, it's a temporal account. So they, when they've gone under the knife, there's this period of time where that stream of consciousness isn't presently in existence, but we can draw a link in a temporal sense so that once they wake up, there's a, once they wake up, there's a connection between them as they are now and them in the past. They're from the first person perspective, they're still experiencing and temporally that would extend over the chain of their unconsciousness, the way that I've, I'm phrasing it. And you're asking me why, and I think why is because it's the best way to explain these cases and it makes sense of our understanding of personal identity in these different cases. But that's weird, right? So suppose I don't share the account. I don't share the account that what makes you who you are is your consciousness. And it seems to me that consciousness is not the sort of thing this is my view. It's not the sort of thing that persists through gappy existence. And I just don't see why it is the same person who wakes up in a numerical identity sense. I just don't see that. In virtue of what can you show me? Can you, what argument can you give for why it is the same first person perspective? The best argument that I can give is in William's example, he's talking about pain. So let's imagine that this person who wakes up is in tremendous pain. And this person will, that pain will persist for a very long time. Before you undergo that procedure, let's say you, Jason, are about to undergo this procedure, do you fear the pain that you will experience, or let's phrase it neutrally, that this person will experience after they wake up? I would think yes. And if the answer is yes, it can't be because it's a separate person. You don't fear other people's pain. You must be feeling, fearing your own pain. Maybe the explanation I would give for why I'm scared of it is that I could have an unconscious or conscious bodily account because that is what seems to persist, is it's my body that persists across time. There's no gap in that body's existence. So the body exists before the operation, during the operation, after the operation. The mind inhabiting that body experiences pain just after the operation. The mind inhabiting the body just before the operation thinks 
oh my goodness, I don't want the mind just afterwards to experience this pain because it's my body and I'm my body. So that could be the reason why I fear it. Okay, good. But I think the, that has a problem with simple teletransportation because now you're saying I persist in virtue of the persistence of my body, but in simple teletransportation, your body doesn't persist yet. It seems like when you wake up, you feel as if you are one and the same person. And if you were to experience pain in that case, you would also feel like I'm going to dread the pain that thing would experience. Good. I, I think that the bodily account doesn't work. I agree with that. But I think that it's a better explanation for intuition in that circumstance than the intuition that it's the same, that it's the same perspective. Because in virtue of what is it the same perspective? It doesn't share any of the psychological states that perspective usually has. But I agree we're now at a nice, a nice stalemate where your intuitions and my intuitions are just pointing in different directions. So I'm not sure where to go from here. I'm going to get whoever's editing this episode to chop this out, but I think Mark might have a better suggestion as to where to go forward. So I wonder about this. You've alluded to the idea of what it's like to be a certain way. And we know what it's like to have that quality of human existence, your personal memories, your experiences. We could imagine them being transplanted into some other kind of body. We could say that new being has the qualia and maybe survive inside of it. What does it mean to say that there's the qualia of being a fetus? What are those experiences and how do they connect to the later iterations of that physical being? That's, it's an excellent question of what would a fetus feel and obviously my real answer is I don't know, I don't remember, but I, what's important to my account is simply that there is something that it is like to be the fetus. And I would imagine that the answer to that is it's a very minimal level of awareness. And it, elsewhere in the paper, I talk about this case where the fetus only has consciousness for a moment. So let's say there was consciousness that popped into existence for one second, and then it popped out of existence until much later on. And on my account, what's happened is this being has been created and it would persist in a sense, or at least the victimhood requirement, the thing that I talked about earlier, would be satisfied, even though it's unconscious for the period of time in the middle. And I think that's true. However, even though that's true, I still would think that abortion would be permissible in a case like that. And the reason why is because there's such a minimal level of experience that we're talking about in the beginning this thing has only ever had the bare minimum amount of existence that to whatever extent it persists across time in the, the later amount or the later moment, the qualitative identity is very small. And that also matters on my account is the qualitative identity. So I wonder if you're susceptible to a couple of repugnant pills. So the one is, why should we say, if you're willing to say, look, let's say there's a spark of consciousness at some point, and then it fades away until it becomes more persistent at a later point. Why should we just care about this sort of mere spark as opposed to the intensity of it? As you say, neither of us have any recollection of what it was like being a fetus. And we probably have no recollection of what it was like being a newborn. You mentioned that Jeff McMahon, we've had on the show, says, I'm not so sure whether you are continuous with those beings, those early parts of human development. Is it so bad if the two-year-old gets euthanized. No one has a recollection of what it was like to be a two-year-old. Why should we object to a mother saying, look, it's just, it's torturous having this person sucking on my teeth and taking up space in the house and making a lot of noise and is really interfering with a lot of my liberties. I know it's outside of my body, but is it that important if we took it out? Like, I'm sure you've got all these other interests that are at stake here. 
I think it'd be very difficult to have that sort of conversation because my intuitions are just very different. I feel like you could give an account of morality that would explain why killing the two-year-old is acceptable simply because you don't like having them around anymore. But I feel like if you did that would in and of itself would be such a fatal flaw to me. And then I would say, you've gone wrong somewhere and you've gone wrong somewhere because you're allowing this terrible thing. And if I, if we had a conversation about this, I think it might just get down to this fundamental dispute over what we both consider as bad. I think that's bad and he might not think that's bad and it would be very hard to get past that. But I just have the intuition that killing a child just for selfish reasons is bad and it's bad because that's an intrinsic quality of the act. So I take it that Mark's point isn't that it's okay to kill children. It's that on your account, it's okay. So that's a consequence of your view. Is that correct, Mark? Yeah, that's what I'm trying to get at is that if you accept that it would be repugnant to kill the infant and it's quite hard for us to draw a distinction between the qualities in the infants and the qualities in the fetus, then I think you might've opened yourself up to something that you don't want to tolerate. To me, the difference is that it's conscious and because it's conscious, it persists across time. And therefore when we kill it, there is somebody who's deprived of life because by the act we violated the rights of an identifiable being. The difference being that if we were to kill that being before it was conscious, there's no account, there's no good account of identity that would make sense of why that being would have persisted across time and therefore would have been a victim of the act. So I wonder about this. Is there an added layer of complexity in the account that need not be there? Why not just say don't kill conscious beings as opposed to being supersist over time? But the reason is because of cases like we were talking about earlier where somebody is asleep or somebody's in a coma. I think that if you kill somebody who's in a coma who has the possibility of waking up at some point in the future, you've done something wrong. And if you simply had the account that just said killing conscious beings is wrong, it would be hard to explain why that's true. So we could make a move which is don't kill conscious beings or beings which have a disposition to be conscious. So in other words, if you could wake them up, then they would be conscious and that would get you out of the problem. It's the continuity that seems like an added layer. Maybe that's not that important. No, Jacob mm -hmm. can't hold that account because if you hold that just the disposition is enough to give you moral status, then you can't kill the fetus. Maybe a disposition yeah, is different to a potential. So in other words, you could say the fetus at that point isn't disposed towards consciousness. At a later point, that thing would become conscious, but in and of itself, it's not. And maybe the person who's asleep has the inherent quality of consciousness when awake and can be woken awake, but uh, the fetus on its own until it reaches that certain level of development just merely has potential disposition or different. You mean that it's different in the sense that it has the present capacity for consciousness at that moment? Yes, the present capacity and I suppose certain kinds of conditions. The asleep person has the capacity for consciousness while they're awake and they're easily brought into an awake state. Whereas the zygote has no capacity for consciousness. It would require them to become a different thing to become conscious. And that's not the same as a disposition. It's a potential. I think that would probably make sense of this case. It might be hard to justify in general. I'm giving in this case, a metaphysical reason why there's this principal distinction between the being before it has ever been conscious and after it has been conscious. 
And you know that the reason is because of persistence and identity. But if you're talking, it's just not clear to me why the mere capacity to have consciousness in and of itself makes you a moral agent or moral patient. I've got a case for you. It's an analogy. So you've got a chrysalis in front of you and the chrysalis is going to become a butterfly if you leave it alone. And let's just imagine that the butterfly that's going to become is, for whatever reason, incredibly valuable. Suppose it's the last or the first value, the last or the first butterfly of a certain species. Suppose it has the most incredible set of colored wings. Suppose it's, for whatever reason, phenomenally valuable. But as a chrysalis, if you were to kill it and open it up, it's just mush. It's just gray mush. And it's not beautiful. It's not pretty. But if you wait a week, it's going to be absolutely gorgeous. We might think that there is something wrong if you go and just stomp on that chrysalis for fun. It seems like there is something wrong almost to the extent that there's something wrong with stomping on the magnificent butterfly. And perhaps that's what's going on here, the, pro, the pro-lifer would say. You're ignoring the fact that in just a few weeks' time, this zygote is going to become a fetus that is conscious, which is going to become a baby, and that baby is immensely valuable. And you're cutting that short, and that seems to be a problem. Yeah, this is similar to Thorn Marcus's account of why abortion is wrong, the idea that it's wrong because you're depriving a being of a valuable future like ours. And I respond to that in a way that I suppose I would respond differently to the butterfly case. I might say, on the one hand, I'm not sure what's wrong with stomping on the chrysalis in and of itself. It might be wrong because some other people might enjoy it, but if it was just you in this world in the chrysalis, I don't know if it would be wrong to destroy it in and of itself. It's not a moral patient. It's not a thing that I have duties towards. You might say something like, you've made the world less beautiful and that's bad. And I would say that's bad, but I don't know if it's wrong. The way I would respond to it, to to this sort of case in terms of a fetus, and the way I respond to Marcus is I say, okay, so if you have this, this argument that it's not, it's wrong to kill a fetus because you're depriving it of a valuable future. Then you have to say that it's the same being that would have that future. You can't deprive me of somebody else's future. And any account Marcus is going to give that explains why it's the same being as the one in the future is going to run into problems for him. So he can say that it's the same being because of it, because the body persists across time. For example, the physical account, the physical account runs into the problems we've discussed before where It has trouble making sense of simple teletransportation. would also have trouble distinguishing between identical twins, for example, in the branch line case. And if he gives a psychological account, well, that's a problem because it doesn't have any psychological states right now. So it can't persist across time. And there are some responses I anticipate where people, people who defend this view might say, okay, maybe that's true, but the reason why it's wrong is because in the present, this being has an interest in continuing to exist into the future, even though it's not presently conscious. And you're thwarting that interest by killing it. And and my response to that is to say that underestimates the force of the original objection, which is that you can't deprive me even in the present of somebody else's future. If you take away Bill Gates's future from me, that's a non sequitur. That sentence doesn't make sense. So you have to get the metaphysics right before you can make the moral claim. You have to say, I am the same being, I am the chrysalis, and then I would be the butterfly that would result from it. 
So this gets to the problem I was alluding to earlier, which is that the newborn baby doesn't seem like its psychological features persist through time for very long, at least. If you can't remember what it was like to be the newborn, then it means that that being's consciousness maybe it persists for a while at some point it becomes extinguished and a new being is birthed a bit like the butterfly cases and so maybe you can say it's wrong to kill a being like that because it has some persistence through time but it's very short-lived but it's quite hard to explain the extent of the wrong i wonder if what your views are on killing the elderly killing those that are at advanced stages of dementia versus killing someone who's a healthy adult who has a long-term future and a recognizable past if you think of the difference moral wrongs involved in killing those beings I do discuss this, I guess, a little bit briefly in the paper, and I talk about cases with people with severe Alzheimer's. And I think there may be very extreme cases where it's, it's analogous to what I call momentary consciousness, where this being only persists for one second across time and then forgets everything. In cases like that, I, would, I suppose I would have to accept that euthanasia would be acceptable. But the problem in cases like that is that it would be very hard for me to know. I can't see into your mind. And so I think in a case like that, when there's so much morally at stake, you still probably ought not to do it because you might be risking doing something very bad. But in cases where there's any more persistence than that, if they're, even people with very severe dementia typically have some sort of persistence across time in sort of their mental states and their dispositions and things like that. In cases like that, then it would be wrong to kill them because you're depriving them of at least something. And on my view, that's enough to make it wrong. So your view has some interesting implications for choosing between possible worlds with different numbers of people in them. So your view is that you are not wronging someone when you destroy a zygote that is not yet conscious, that has never experienced any qualia. But you are saying that you are bringing into existence a world with one less person in it. And you're saying that's not a worse thing to do. Am I getting that correct? Yeah, I anticipated at some point the resident utilitarian would talk about that. There's a section of the paper where I talk about consequentialism and saying a consequentialist can steamroll over a lot of this and just say, I don't care who they are. I just care that they're going to be happy. And there are utilitarians who have other views. There's the famous line that says, we care about making people happy, not about making happy people. The problem with the alternative view and saying you have an obligation to maximize the number of people, the amount of happiness, is this immediately leads you to the repugnant conclusion. The view that it would be better to have a, lar a world with many very unhappy people who have a life that's just barely worth living than to have a world with a few very happy people. And unless you can give an account of population ethics that would both avoid that and say that you're always obligated to have another child, then I think the utilitarian would probably also agree with me. But there are very smart utilitarians who are working on doing both of those things, and maybe they could come up with such a theory. I just think it would be very implausible. 